Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Uh, today is January 16th, 2020. It's episode 151. You're listening to Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined across the internet by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Hey, hey, hey. What's going on, everybody? Hey, there he is. Uh, we got some excellent news stories today. They're always excellent. Uh, but we are tackling some uh, something different for the uh, community outreach section this week. And we do have an announcement. But the news this week, we got Heathrow Airport installing some anti-drone system that can locate UAV pilots. We got another alert warning of emergency at a Canadian nuclear power plant sent by mistake. Go figure. And we're taking a look at this force-multiplying industrial exoskeleton being shown at CES. So that's some exciting stuff. But first, last week on the show, folks, I did allude to an announcement this week. Here it is. So Blake and I have done this show for about three and a half years. Uh, Has it really been three and a half years? It has been three and a half years. Wow, Um, man. Congratulations. Congratulations to you too, sir. (laughs) Uh, Here's the thing, though. This show, I have been kind of adamant about keeping ad-free since the early days of reading those god-awful Audible uh, scripts. (laughs) (laughs) uh, If you like books. If you like books. uh, So, look, here's the deal, folks. Being an ad-free podcast is no longer a viable solution for us if we want to keep this going every day or every week. And we do. We really do want to keep this going because... We find there's value here in discussing these news stories, relating them to the field of human factors, and pulling it all together for one uh, coherent discussion, sometimes coherent discussion. Now, what that means for you, the listener, it's not going to be overnight. Um, I'm just announcing this now, so that way you're aware once you do hear an ad in here, you're not surprised by it. Um, but with this, we have some pretty audacious, uh, um, some pretty audacious goals for 2020. Uh, we know we haven't been the best about our bonus podcast on our Patreon. We are revamping our Patreon soon, so stay tuned. We're we're targeting beginning of March for that. Uh, we are in the process of producing an entire year's worth of content up front, so that way there's zero lapse in bonus content for you all if you be, do become a patron. Um, so like I said with ads, we are we are shifting our focus just a little bit. We promise that any ad that you hear on the show will be absolutely relevant to you. It's not going to be like Squarespace or uh, what are some of the other ones that you hear? Um, MeUndies or MeUndies, like some yeah. CBD oil, something like that. They just got a bunch of free shout outs, but we're not doing any of that. We promise if it's on the show, we think it's relevant to human factors. Additionally, I think the thing that you'll see in- initially – uh, is a little bit more uh, passive, which we are kind of thrilled about, is kind of these affiliate links. So any link or any product that we talk about on the show, uh, we're going to try to link to in the description below. And what these affiliate links do is if you click on them and buy it through our link, uh, we get a kickback for the show. And and everything that you do, everything that you buy through those links will go directly back into the show to help make sure that we can keep this thing going every week. Um, so again, like... I didn't want to do this, but it's just it's 2020 now. We mentioned last week we're in the future. Uh, we have to <laughs> we have to look to other ways to kind of keep the show afloat. And 
you know, I, I, I want to do it in the least invasive way as possible. And I know I'm probably making a bigger deal out of this than I should. Like everyone uses affiliate links now, but, uh, it was something that we were just trying to hold on to for a while. And, uh, so you'll see affiliate links down there. Uh, and like I said, those do help the show. So with that said, what's going on in Blake's world? Man, it has been a, a tough early week. I was actually not feeling so great most of the week, so I've been kind of just, you know, low-key, nothing crazy going on. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of great, you know, HF-related banter that I can give you guys this week, unfortunately. But Nick, you've got something sick in here. What are you up to this week? Well, I was not sick this week. Um, <laughs> in fact, I was quite active. And, uh, you know, we talk about fitness quite a bit on this show. I think you and I are both kind of into it at the hobbyist level and you probably a little bit more than that. But, um, so I've been playing around with this thing called ring fit adventure and it is the, you think about how to gamify working out or, um, making working out enjoyable to people who don't like to do it, right. Who don't get satisfaction from it. What ring fit adventure is, is a video game for the Nintendo switch. Uh, and basically what, it looks like if you were to look at me with a camera while I was playing this game, you would see me doing sets of squats, of um, arm presses, of uh, yoga poses, of ab torso twists, of all these different types of exercises. You'd see me jogging in place. You'd see me getting my cardio in. However, if you were to look at the screen of what's going on, I'm fighting monsters. I'm running through an environment. I'm um, like interacting with elements in that environment. I'm jumping over obstacles. I'm collecting things. I'm, I'm doing all these things in a video game and I'm actually strategizing with the exercises that I'm doing. And so this game, I can't even describe in words how clever this is because it disguises working out perfectly in fact like i i do want you to come over at some point so that way you can see it like it is crazy cool um yeah because it like it's called ring fit adventure right so it's for the nintendo switch and it it actually has like a ring that you hold in your hands that allows you to do some of the exercises right yeah so you put uh so the nintendo switch has these two controllers on the side of it that are called joy cons and you put one of them on your thigh so it can measure your Uh, movement of your legs and then you put one of them in this ring um, apparatus that you flex in either um, you push it in or you pull it out and it and it does different things right so if you there's different workouts you can do like forward press you push the thing in um, or you could like do a sustained stretch out and it does these different things like uh, like if you were to pull that out while you're in the environment and look around you're not only working your abs while you're looking around you're also sucking in tokens like pulling out is sucking in so you're sucking in tokens from on the side and you're still jogging in place but you're holding your core in a certain way to collect these things it's really clever man and not only that but this thing goes deep this thing is not just like face value you're doing exercise to do these things it also puts you in situations day after day to make sure that you're rotating in a way that doesn't make sure it it makes sure that you're not like overextending yourself on some of these exercises right like let's say some are easier than others like the forward press for me is pretty easy 
So it puts me in a situation where I'm fighting different colored monsters and the colors are representative of the um, muscle group that you are working out. And if you attack it with the muscle group, you get some sort of uh, advantage in attack power, right? So I go up to a purple monster, that's legs. So I have to do squats or high knees or something to make sure that monster goes down quickly or else I'm going to die and have to do that level again. Um, and so it's it's really cool. It's really cool, dude. Yeah, it seems like it's they've really thought about like how you implement a bunch of different exercises so to get you like that full body functional workout into just a video game that allows you to mask the fact that you are working out, you're like interacting through the game with this ring to do different actions in the game. So they do you, we watched a video of it last week before we actually did the podcast and it just seems like such an awesome idea because if you could I can only imagine this being like something that not just like you or I would play but I can imagine people that are younger than us playing it even like if you had like your you know your older parents over and you did it as like kind of a house party thing it could be a lot of fun so it's sweet to see the Nintendo's really one of the first ones to jump into this exercise gaming space because uh, I think there's definitely a lot of potential there and as we get more and more kind of enveloped in you know VR and AR and video game environments I think it's important to make sure that we're keeping you know cardiovascular and muscular health in a good place in your life so doing get doing like doing it like this through video games is a really awesome kind of application of the technology it's really cool like I can't stress how clever this thing is and every time I realize what it's doing like I didn't realize there were attack powers on it so you have to do more intense like sets to make sure that certain enemies go down or else you have to do the whole fight again um it's it's really clever so not only is it working your body but it's working your mind because it is an RPG it's a game it's a role-playing game and you actually have to make choices that are going to better uh, get you through this environment. It's it's really cool. Highly recommend if you have a Nintendo Switch. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, at least see some reviews. I know there's a ton of them out there, but this is this is my endorsement of it. I guess it's really cool. Yeah, getting shredded playing video games. There you go. Yeah, who knew? It's 2020. It's the future. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we jump into? This next part of the show, all about Human Factors news. This is where we break down everything related to the field of Human Factors. Uh, we got some drones in there. We have some alerts in there. We have some exoskeletons. We got a lot of fun stuff this week. Blake, what do we got up first? All right, first up, we'll dive into the drone world. So the UK knows firsthand how disruptive drones can be at major airports. Last March, it introduced legislation to widen the drone no-fly zone around airports to five kilometers. And now to enforce these new rules, London's Heathrow Airport has now installed a system to detect and identify unauthorized drones. The one-of-a-kind counter-drone system was designed for Heathrow Airport. In addition to detecting and tracking unauthorized drones, the system will locate the drone pilots who can face up to five years in prison for flying a drone in a UK flight-restricted zone without permission. So the drone counter technology uses a holographic radar system, but it's unclear if the system includes a way to disable drones once they've been identified. Better drone detection systems should help prevent major air traffic problems. And in addition to keeping passengers and airport staff safe, the system could reduce the fuel wasted by flight stacking and delays caused by unauthorized drone use. 
Man, so this is too funny. We were talking about this last week in our like kind of roll-up episode of the year of 2019 about how protesters had used drones to basically shut down the airport at Heathrow. Um, and now they've they've gone a couple steps further, adding legislation and developing this counter drone system. So this is pretty intense step on you know the UK's part towards like you know managing drone problems. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting um, a, 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 an interesting way to go about it for sure because um, not only this is well, yeah, this will inform the airport itself where these drones are and like i i guess my confusion here is how do they identify the people um I, I, if you have some drone registration that might be easier right uh if you can locate where a drone is um it can uh it says it locates drone pilots so so i know that in the states at least the only analog i have in the states, if your drone is above two hundred and fifty micrograms, like you have to, you have to register it with an authority. Right. So there is a system where you have, you would have it tied to your name. So I'm assuming that's probably what's going on here. Now I know that there are, are they- drone companies out there that are making drones specifically like one gram under the maximum weight that you have to register it. So I don't know; it's a foolproof system. Um, but I would assume like if you, there must be some kind of relational system they because they, they mentioned like scanning it with i guess a radar system so there must be something they're able to pick up that's unique to a drone right that's what i'm wondering is, is there unique broadcast systems from the remote control to the drone that would then link them together right like you can see oh this thing is clearly being controlled by this person over here um and you know uh, like an XY position geopositionally can can we locate them that way or is it like an identifier where oh this drone is registered to this person um and so we're going to hit them with a ticket that's probably more likely what it is right cuz I, I feel like the the tech would have to be super advanced to be be like okay this is this person's drone here's the exact location that we're getting like radio transmissions from their you know, your cell phone or whatever you're using to actually video control the drone I don't know if it's that advanced, right? I mean, like, maybe, uh, well, with, like, RF drones, right? Are there even RF drones? I don't even know. I, I'd imagine most of them are radio frequency, right? So it'd be able to detect, like, the, the directionality of the signals, and if it if you can trace it back to, like, an object producing those signals being sent out to the drone, I don't think it'd be that difficult. Maybe I, not, and maybe that's what they're doing. I feel like they would probably just be ticketing people, though, because even if you – let's say you could do that. I could, you know, locate some specific person. It's It sounds like, especially from these, like, extra two bullets that you've included here about from the story, that there's such a drone problem that you just wouldn't have the manpower to get people out and, like, being, like, served up tickets immediately. Yeah, so let's – Let's read some of those fun facts. So uh, we talked about this one pretty recently here, but uh, last year we had uh, climate protesters who attempted to close Heathrow Airport using illegal drones um, or illegal drone flights. So the drones themselves were illegal, but flying in that airspace was. And then in 2018, um, we had drones flying near uh, Gatwick in London, uh, near the peak of holiday travel that affected... Uh, about 760 flights, so 110,000 passengers, which is just crazy to me to think about how drones can mess up um, this like semi-smooth operating machine that is airports. 
Yeah, and especially the fact that this is, and maybe I'm wrong, but it, it, I think this is the point, especially in the climate protesters, we know it's the case, but like the first bullet in 2018 with that many flights being, you know, affected, that's crazy that that's done from, you know, commercially available drones being able to interrupt flight paths. Because um, even if you're registering them, I didn't realize that they could, you know, span that much airspace because be that problematic. So that's that's a lot to deal with, especially in a probably one of the busiest airports or busiest couple of airports around the world. Yeah. Um, so the thing that's not clear here, and the article actually does point this out, is that they're not sure if it's able to disable them once they've been identified. I would hope so. I don't know if you like send out some RF blockers or something that like pre- prevents that drone from receiving signal um, or like, uh, like, I don't know. There's some crazy technology out there, so I don't even care to speculate, but um, yeah, I'd be curious to see like, that would be the ultimate solution, right? Hey, there's drones in our air sport, uh, airspace, shut them down. So they don't impact flights. Yeah. It would be one of those things where, I would think you would have, if you're going to like, if you're going to take that approach and try and shut them down or, you know, revert them, it would have to almost send a signal to the drone that's identified to give it like, this is getting way too complicated, but give it a different flight path home or like flight paths to somewhere safe. Cause it couldn't just, you know, like disengage it and it falls out of the sky. And then you got like a risk of it hitting something or somebody on the way down. Uh, but that, that would be amazing if you, if, because it enters in this specific class of airspace or zone that the radar system could, for all intents and purposes, take control of it and land it somewhere else, basically confiscating it so it can't right. cause any more problems. That would be amazing. That would be really cool. I feel like that would be a job in and of itself, like a, a drone confiscation, you know, ATC and operator in the airport. That could be like a whole set of new jobs right there. Yeah, there you go. We're, we're living in the future. Absolutely. Uh, 2020, you got drone confiscator. <laughs> yep. By the way, f- uh, I I know we usually talk about CES. We don't have a CES like recap article in here this week. I do want to bring up, though, as we're talking about drones, there was a drone at CES that was intended for uh, home surveillance. So it's a home surveillance drone that kind of goes out and patrols your house, comes back and charges, and then goes back out. And it just kind of goes on this repeat loop of surveilling your home um which is kind of crazy that is a little nuts man it's like it's almost getting to jetson's land where you're just able to survey yeah. your own home and the drone goes and you know, it takes a little nap because it needs a little juice and then goes back out and continues its mission yeah and i i i didn't read too far into it but i think the gist is that you know most security systems today are outward facing and not a whole lot of inward facing stuff so like the premise is that you have a ring doorbell or something that can look outward. Um, but what happens once they break in that door, unless you have cameras inside, you can't see what's going on. And so that drone could actually go in and follow the intruder um, and record it live in the moment, you know, and, and kind of provide this action cam footage of your house getting robbed or whatever Man, and YouTube's get a close up. Blow up with that stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's really cool. It's really cool. Um, That's so great. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I know we didn't have necessarily a recap of CES this year. Uh, that was one kind of interesting thing. Maybe we'll do it next week. I'm not sure. That would be um, fun because like, I'm we did sure say, there's some awesome stuff that came out. Yeah, we did say we'd do predictions this week, um, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, maybe we could recap last year's if we have time at the end of the show. But um, anyway, why don't we go ahead and move on to this next one?
Awesome. All right. So back in alert land. So Canadian officials have demanded an explanation after an inaccurate alert was sent out to cell phones stating staff were to respond to an incident at the Pickering Nuclear Generation Station near Toronto on Sunday. So the emergency alert was sent out by Ontario's Provincial Emergency Operations Center, or OPEC, or no, O-E-O-O. Excuse me, P-E-O-C, which it notified people within 12 kilometers, about 6.2 miles of the that facility, that there had been no actual abnormal release of radioactivity and that they did not need to take any protective actions against that at this time. Of course, receiving an emergency alert from a nuclear facility is quite disconcerting, whether or not it claims people in the area are at risk or not. Uh, according to the BBC, this message went out around 7.30 and another alert was sent out later informing the public that there was actually a mistake, though it was not nearly for two hours until that happened. So Pickering's mayor uh, told the BBC that he is demanding a full investigation, while Toronto mayor tweeted that it's important to know how this error actually happened and what steps will be taken to ensure this doesn't happen again. And this is something I'm sure we'll, we might even be able to revisit next week or we can at least like put it in our Slack stories if we see something because I'm assuming this is going to pan out similar to how what happened in Hawaii did with the ballistic missile error where you're, we're going to learn over time like really what was maybe the major cause of this happening. But this is equally terrifying to me that you would have some kind of problem at a nuclear facility with a lot of people around it. Yeah. I mean, I... I picked this story because I think there's probably a human factors cause here. Um, we just know that it was by accident. We don't know exactly what the cause was. And so my guess, my suspicion here, my wild prediction, if you will. Oh, man. Is, here we go. Is that somebody clicked the wrong button <laughs> and sent out a false alarm when they meant to send out or when they sent out a real alarm when they meant to send out a false alarm. Yeah, I think you're probably Bold right prediction. If, if like the Hawaii thing taught us anything, but uh, one thing I want to point out, I want to like cuz Hawaii in the news like if it whether it was just like creating clickbait articles or not actually having, you know, human factors people to chime in. Like that was really chalked up to a lot of just human error, but if we like we looked at the interface and some of the ridiculousness that was going on in there. I mean, that design was not helping anybody make correct decisions either. So I'm wondering if we're seeing something similar here, like if it's just interfaces and designed all that grand. And so you, you have a higher likelihood of being able to make a mistake like this, or was it some kind of just random weird engineering error where something happened in the back end and an alert accidentally went out? I'm, I'm sure that you're probably right. It was just like an accidental send, nothing, Nothing you could really do about it, but the part that bothers me, or at least is co has a commonality with what we saw in Hawaii, is that like even the response to it of oh, okay, this is not really happening, everything's actually all right. There's still like such a delay in time before you can get that figured out of how to do that or get that message out to people that that's really what I think should be fixed in these types of systems if these mistakes happen because i mean you could pro you can definitely design a perfect interface and still people will make mistakes regardless of like what the cause is but being able to kind of follow up on like this is not really an error or that kind of stuff in a quicker manner so that people aren't sent into a panic or they're not trying to shut down a nuclear facility for instance is like a big kind of hard point here i think yeah i don't really have much more to add to this one other than uh, I can't wait to see what happened. Um, 
and I I sound excited over that, but like this this sucks. This no one wants false alarms, especially when it's something of this magnitude. But like, it's always interesting to see these case studies of human factors and how things went wrong. And so I'm I'm really hoping this is human factors because we picked it for the show. But you know, I'm also hoping that it's not because if it wasn't human factors, then that means you know it's operating as intended and whoever was behind the scenes like you said if it was just like an engineering error then it's not our fault (laughs) yeah i mean who knows because it's one of those things where like human factors in nuclear facilities is always that thing you see in textbooks like like people like there's that famous picture of people like putting beer taps on different knobs so they know what actual buttons do so i'm wondering if that's a similar issue here where we're just seeing kind of another evolution of need for human factors um, either design or engineers to jump in and try and determine how to kind of make a system like this better or less, you know, prone to errors like this or accidents on the human side. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we take a quick break and we'll be right back right after this short break. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and uh, thank you to all of our friends over at Engadget, Gizmodo, and Sarcos for all of our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, we do post those in our Slack or all over social media uh, as we find them, so go ahead and check those out. Uh, And you know what? We also post them in the description, so you can check those for the original articles. Why don't I have that in here? We always post them in our description. Why don't we? (laughs) Yes. I think this is a way for us to drive engagement, right? To go go to our so we're pulling back the curtain here, folks. Um, anyway, yeah, we got one more story left, uh, and then and then we're gonna do something a little different and fun. I think. Oh man, so fun and different. Why don't we go? Yeah, why don't we go ahead and get into this last story here? All right, so Delta Airlines is par- partnering with Sarcos Robotics to explore new employee technology. Fit for a superhero, a fit for a superhero. So a mobile and dextro, dexterous exoskeleton designed to boost employees' physical capabilities and bolster their safety. So this robotic suit is designed for employees to wear and does some of the heavy lifting for them. So by bearing the weight of the suit and the payload, the exoskeleton may enable an employee to lift up to 200 pounds repeatedly for eight hours at a time without much strain or fatigue. So the company says they owe it to the airline to the best airline employees on the planet to explore how emergent technology can make their jobs easier and, of course, safer. So that's why they actually sought this par- partnership with Sarcos Robotics. And so this this robotic system called the Guardian XO is designed for the use in industries where lifting and manipulation of heavy materials or awkward objects is required and isn't easily handled by standard lift equipment. So potential uses at Delta could include handling freight at Delta 
cargo warehouses, or even moving maintenance components at the Delta Tech Ops or lifting heavy machinery and parts for ground support equipment. That would be the... I don't know. It would feel like it is definitely a movie if you were at the airport and you saw an exoskeleton carrying a piece to replace on a plane, like replacing, you know, an in, a side engine or something like that, walking down the runway, just making its way with this giant engine and feel like Alien or Sigourney Weaver coming down the ro- runway. Yeah, I I can. Uh, yeah, this would be really cool to see uh, not only freight, but like the. Um, I, I wonder if they have this in like. Uh, assembly facilities or uh, even even on the tarmac right lifting heavy cargo into airplanes with with this assisted exoskeleton I don't know I'm, I'm sure Chris Reed could give us like a couple different ways in which uh, you know this could be used he's the exoskeleton guy he's uh, ergo X so um, yeah I find this fascinating and i think the more we see exoskeletons in everyday life the more it's going to feel like the future 2020s here yeah and i wonder if this is because this is like the sarcos is actually a robotics company so they're kind of building exoskeletons so it's that that intermediary between the human and the robot i wonder if like employing exoskeletons at a larger scale where humans are still using them and you're able to you know maybe learn how movements are supposed to go or how you know unloading and loading goes if that over time really the test bed is is to eventually get a human out of an exoskeleton and make it into a robot that actually can do the job and not possibly cause automated task yeah that's what it feels like it feels like that this mat like a mass scale of exoskeletons might eventually especially for a robotics company become automated robots where you have people much more in a supervisory role or if it's even like a combination of things so you're you use i'm probably getting way out i am getting way out of my wheelhouse here but you use like ML and machine learning over time to understand people's movements and what they're actually doing their jo- doing in their jobs in terms of movements and putting things away or moving different items and what the schedule looks like. And then you can use that to almost automate how the human would do it and they can intervene as they need to if they're in the exoskeleton. Uh, but it, that's just kind of really a speculative thought of how all this stuff will evolve over time. Here's my prediction for 2020. Exoskeletons yeah, was- are going to be, you know, <laughs> become robots at some point. So you're thinking that the human operator would almost train these exoskeletons and translate that movement data into robotics? That's what that yeah that's that probably makes it sound silly and it probably is a silly idea, but that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that with the the cuz with what we're seeing with computational power, I would assume that you could learn or a machine learning algorithm could learn kind of the, the basic moves or the schedule of maintenance or whatever it may be. And so if you have a human kind of riding along to make sure like, uh, oh, don't make this tiny mistake or kind of look out for some of the, my more minutia details while actually having the exoskeleton do most of the work from a robotic standpoint, that's really where I'm, I'm heading or, you know, getting a human completely out of it. And it's somebody who's monitoring a fleet of just, you know, robot skeletons doing this stuff. Oh, Oh my gosh, we're getting so futuristic here. It's pretty scary. It's 2020. <laughs> we got to think way outside the box. It is. It is. It is 2020. Uh, okay. Well, Blake, I, I don't have any more to say about this story, so why don't we go ahead and jump into some fun stuff? What do you think? Let's do fun what stuff. Do you, what, do you, what do you say? What do you say? We say, <laughs> what do you say? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay. So this is normally the community outreach section. However, we're going to do something a little different this week. Um, Blake and I are going to first go through some 
some book recommendations for 2020. Uh, you know, a lot of people's New Year's resolutions. We did post these in our Slack, but I, I feel like they're worth revisiting and, and actually having our commentary on them. Um, it's always fun to kind of revisit these book recommendations as the new year, people's New Year's resolutions is to read so many books in a year. And so uh, we just wanted to give you some kind of good recommendations from us. Um, after that, I think we're going to go, <laughs> we're going to do something else. So, so we're not done yet, so stick around. All right, Blake. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, do you have yours pulled up? I have mine pulled up. I do. Okay, great. So why don't we just go one by one? I'll have you start, and then I'll go, and then we'll just kind of back and forth it. Awesome. So Nick uh, did an awesome job of kind of bringing in some of the more human factor stuff, and I I kind of went down the UX route, so then we get a nice split here for sure, plus a little bit of like business tech stuff. Um, but my first one was called Lean UX. So this is a book that was introduced to me when I hopped into the startup world of like, oh shit, what do I actually do with all this stuff that I learned in grad school? Or how do I implement a design process in a company that doesn't have one and we have to move really, really fast? So this is just a book that is, it's probably less than 150 pages, but it's much, it's probably the most actionable book I've ever picked up and read and be able to actually put into play. So it really helps you get kind of the UX process implemented quickly in a company, especially when you don't have time to, you know, figure out all the different steps and paths you could take. It kind of gives you kind of step-by-step, step, what are the minimal viable things you should be doing from a research perspective and then translating that into actual designs and then products. Um, and it's just a great starting place, especially if you're in your first job and maybe maybe you've entered a startup or maybe you've entered a company that doesn't really have a giant design culture and you're looking for a way to grow it or a way to kind of guide yourself. So it was just a fun book to read and it's really quick. Yeah, here's one. So my first recommendation, it's a classic uh, everyone recommends this book, uh, and that's for a reason. This one's The Design of Everyday Things. Now, this one's from our old pal Don Norman. Um, so The Design of Everyday Things goes through exactly that. I mean, it takes a look at everyday objects and examines kind of how they're uh, sort of built and how they are built for the human. And it's a really interesting read. Strongly recommend uh, if you're just getting into the field, this is probably a really good starting point. If you've been around in the field, you know this book. Um, I have a copy on my desk. I know a couple other people have a copy on their desk. It's nice to have around. It's a good read. It's fun. Um, I don't really have much more to say about it. It's a good foundational book. Absolutely, yeah. Anything my Don Norman kind of gets you in that sense. Um, yeah. So the second book that I threw up here is About Face. I think that it's like in its third iteration. So it's About Face, Essentials and Interaction Design. And this is by Alan Cooper. So I'm somebody who kind of took a different route from the human typical human factors role, or I guess what I considered a typical human factors role. I kind of transitioned from just doing or being a research and analyst into more of a designer and development role. Um, and so when I started doing that early on, I really didn't have a good baseline or understanding of, you know, what are some great design principles that you should be focusing on when you're trying to create a UI or what should, or how do you really make sure that you're translating things from your end users into great digital products? And this book really gives you a lot of tips and pointers to understand like, okay, there's a, here, there's a lot of solid visual design principles that will be good to know if you want to start out designing interfaces and kind of here's what they are and here's how they kind of change as you hear different feedback from users. So it was just a really great book to really blend in both like user experience and human factors methodology, but then how that translates into pretty concrete and simple visual design principles. 
Okay, so the next one I have here is Evil by Design. This one is from Chris Nodder. I've got uh, to read this book. You've like you've talked about it since we started this podcast, and I've always wanted to read it. It is a fantastic book. So what this is is it kind of goes through like dark patterns, and it's more than that, but it's kind of the like shady UX, shady human factors practices that you see on websites that you see in design. And it kind of uh, it kind of looks at it through a fun lens where you're looking at this through the seven deadly sins, right? So like um, uh, sloth, you would put the easiest option as you know the the most destructive to the user or the most beneficial to the company, right? Hey, join our thing for ninety nine ninety nine, and that's a front and center uh, sort of call the action button versus like the very, very tiny X that you have to click in the bottom to get rid of the pop-up. Um, and that's, again, that would be like sloth, right? Cause the lazy option would be to click the thing. Um, that's, that's the bigger, um, button. And so it goes into all these different things, uh, all these different, um, all, all the seven deadly sins of pride, sloth, gluttony, gluttony, anger, envy, lust, and greed. Um, and just to kind of give a preview here, like pride, you use social proof or position your product in line with your visitors' values. Sloth, you want to build a path of least resistance that leads users where you want them to go. Gluttony, you escalate customers' commitment and use loss of aversion to keep them there. Anger, understand the power of metaphysical arguments and anonymity. <laughs> That's the best one. Envy. Create a culture of status around your product and feed aspirational desires. Lust. Turn desire into commitment by using emotion to defeat rational behavior. And greed. Keep customers engaged by reinforcing the behaviors you desire. So it's a really fantastic read. I could not put this thing down as soon as I, as, as when I got this thing. So uh, good read. Check it out. All right. So the last one that I have is Oldie But Goodie, and it is nothing to do with human factors or design. Uh, so, of course, I put it in here because it makes sense to do that. So, it's called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. So, it's just a book that had a massive impact on kind of how I manage my own time and how I think about efficiency and what I'm doing with my time day to day. Because I'm somebody who doesn't really want to sleep under my desk, even though I have two jobs. I have a bunch of different creative pursuits that I kind of chase after all the time. Uh, but the only way I can really do that is through actual planning and like coming up with goals and how do you create things like passive income or how do you know what is worth kind of expanding your skill set on or what when to say no to things and this was just a book that really helped me kind of figure out not not in the hundred percent the best actionable ways but over time really how do I how to manage my time the best so that I get the most out of you know my career my life my creative desires all that kind of stuff so it's again it's not HF related but I feel like it can have a very big impact on how you kind of look at you know, the work-life balance or how you kind of build your own, you know, lifestyle around what you do for a job. I think I might buy that one. Um, if you buy Evil by Design, I will buy this one and we will come back and we will talk about yeah, it. Yeah, there we go. Um, <laughs> it's only, it's, I can just buy it on Audible. I'm going to do it. All right. Bought. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> so uh, this last one I have is also not a human factors uh, book directly. However, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that I am into VR um, and social psychology is my background. So 
I recommend this other one. In uh, this this last book here is uh, called Infinite Reality: Avatars, Eternal Life, New Worlds, and the Dawn of Virtual of the Virtual Re- Revolution. Uh, this is by Jim. Blaskovich and Jeremy Balinson. Um, so these are two prominent social psychologists uh, that work in the VR space. And it's an interesting application to see kind of how VR has um, sort of adapted over the years and the definition of virtual reality and how we can use it to sort of encourage some pro-social behaviors um, to really see how we interact with other people. Uh, like I said, it's less human factors related, um, but more it's, it's VR, but it's still psychology. So there's some interest there still. I would say my most favorite fact from this book is that VR started back in caveman days. Whoa, that's a heady like drip into one to get that book too. Jeez. That's pretty sick. Yeah. So, so a little bit more backstory on that. So, so, Virtual reality is just anything that you think of um, where you are transported to a different environment, either physically, mentally, or, um, you know, in your mind. So the idea of storytelling is something that has been around for ages. And if you get so engrossed in a story that you are living it in your mind, that is a virtual environment. Um, And so starting there, what's the progression? Where are we at today? Um, it's it's a fun book to go and read if you're into virtual reality at all. Loving it, man. Yeah, you've really like okay. made me a a a, few, a VR enthusiast. Like I think you're the only you're the f- first person to introduce me to <laughs> VR really like, like actually give me a VR experience. Um so this is something I'm super excited to learn more about and like its application and to kind of see the social impacts of it from a psychology standpoint. That was one of my favorite or that was actually one of my favorite professors was a social psych teacher. So it'd be interesting to read that and kind of think about his metaphysical methodology he had in his had in his classes. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So here's the last little fun thing we're going to do for today. It appears, and I may be incorrect about this. We may have just uh, listed them off in the actual episode, but according to the show notes, Blake, you and I did not have 2019 predictions. I think we stopped it after 2018. What? Yeah, I don't, I don't um, believe that for some reason. Is that true? Is that like I think that's Nick true. from the past uh, trying we, to mess with Nick from the present? I don't know. Like I said, we only have the 2018 predictions in here. We may have uh, just like rattled them off, but I'm not sure. So here's what we're going to do for now. I'm going to go back and listen to that episode. Um, but for now, we're going to take a look at our 2018 predictions. These are t- predictions back from, I guess, at January 2018. So we have two years that these could have happened, um, and we're going to go That's through That's probably them. pretty good, because uh, two years is actually a little bit of time for something maybe to have gotten in that direction. Maybe not, like, you know, actually happen, but at least move in the direction. Yeah, so I, I felt like this was a fun little exercise. You know, this gives us an extra year on some of our... Um, some of our 2018 predictions to see. So I'll kind of go through mine or like mine one at a time and you can go through yours one at a time. Uh, we'll kind of talk about them and, and see if they came true. Oh man. I already see that this, uh, this didn't happen so good. <laughs> All right. So I said, where did I come up with this? It's supposed to be a buzzword. So this is Omni channel UX. So there'll be a shift from focusing on mobile to voice voice and VR engagement within a person's surrounding environment. So Facebook will launch 
a major platform to make social interactions immersive through connective devices. Hmm. That so I think we have. I think Facebook did launch some sort of social space to go along with o- Oculus. They right? certainly did. Yeah. So that meets the VR component. I don't know. See, I'm t- I haven't been as plugged in, and this makes me want to go peek around. But like voice UI is supposed to be really or was supposed to be like the next big thing. Like there was conferences about it, all sorts of stuff. But I don't know what like the big outcomes have been. Now I know we've seen a lot more. All right, I, I gotta like not say the assistants' names, but we've talked a lot more about all kind of all of the assistants like. Um, Amazon's yeah, with the skills coming sure. out from like from simple things you can do at work to like HIPAA compliant skills, and then also Advents and Siri. So I mean, that's that at least some stuff happened related to it. Uh, but as far as was it just a shift? I don't really know if I could say that. Yeah. So okay, here we go. Um, my first one was here. Major legislation will be passed to outline regulations for human brain interfaces. Uh, the major highlights would be no active stimulation, only passive signal detection. Um, I don't think that happened. No, it hadn't come yet. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking that's like a, a 2022 real event. That's okay. what I'm thinking right. because that's a, that's a really good one. Uh, so this one definitely happened, and I'm really glad that I am the Nostradamus of human factors stuff. So cryptocurrency, the value and utility of cryptocurrency will replace traditional marketplace cash transactions. We'll be paying for groceries with cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, we're doing that now. Because <laughs> that happened. We pretty much use Bitcoin anywhere. Yeah. That's pretty Dude, cool. I Bitcoin all That's day. What are you talking think. about? That's crazy to think that back in 2018 we weren't even doing. Yeah, that. well, it's kind of um, funny too because they're they're definitely like I know crypto it didn't take off like a lot of people thought there was a lot of just different speculation about how wildly successful it's going to be, but there's still a lot of you know because I use a lot of kind of like passive do with my finances investing stuff, and so there's still a lot of kickbacks to like if you refer friends you get you know, Bitcoin or something or cryptocurrency and that kind of stuff. So there is some still kind of like services around that, but it's definitely not as ubiquitous as I'm going to the, to Jimbo's down the street and being like, yo, let me pay for my groceries and my Bitcoins. Right. (laughs) Not happening. Uh, Okay. So my next one here was VR as a service. Um, Beginning with in-home PSVR trials, we'll see a monthly subscription service to attend VR events. Now, we haven't seen the monthly subscription service. However, we have kind of seen these, like, pop-up stands where you can do these VR experiences, um, which is kind of along those lines. I I wouldn't consider this a a confirmed prediction by any means, but I think, you know, we're starting to come that way. Well, even, like, Epic Games was doing a little bit of that. I mean, not necessarily with the VR headset, but, like, having, you know, that marshmallow artist do concerts inside of Fortnite. Fortnite. Like, that kind of stuff. And that exclusive, yeah, they had an exclusive Star Wars event in Fortnite, too, and that's, like, a kind of weird confluence of all these pop culture references uh, just in one online world which kind of feels like the oasis from ready player one in some way for sure um so i don't know i i don't think it's in line with this prediction but it was fun to look at i'm gonna read one more of mine because it looks like i have five and you have three so i'll just get 
get a little bit of the heads up here. My next one here is we will see the introduction of yet another add-on item for the criminal justice system, the drone cam that gets a 360 aerial aerial view of confrontations to put police officers in context. Well, we're one step closer to that with that drone cam from CES, right? Most definitely, yeah. <laughs> I think that one's a lot closer because we did a lot of stuff, at least over this last year, of the smart cities concept and like being preparing people and preparing the idea that stuff's always going to be watching. Um, so I don't know. That one's not too too far off, I don't think. I remember 2017 was a pretty big year for body cam footage and how a lot of it came out. <sighs> yeah, um, that was a pretty rough and, year for uh, that. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on with that, and I think this is just kind of an extension on that. I still think it's a great idea. Um, maybe maybe Blake and I should develop that and take it to CES next year. Let's go. Work for Axon or something. That'd be so fun. All right. Go ahead. What's your last one? Oh, my last one. This one definitely came true, too. So we will see the first fully functioning neural lace prototype in 2018. Oh, it's 2019, though. Yeah, (laughs) there's that problem, too. So an added feature of the neural lace is a new type of software encryption to prevent cyber attacks of the mind from AI or otherwise. So that one, general AI is not here yet. Haven't seen a new neural ace, and there's definitely not something that's protecting your mind that I know of. Now, that could be very R&D under the Neuralink thing. Um, now, are you thinking something to protect your mind, like like people wear face masks and makeup to hide from face recognition? So, I'm not... I need, You know, I really need to take another look at Neuralink, because I may be speaking out of school here. Um, but I think the entire purpose is that it's a PCI to kind of help you allow, allow you to keep up with AI. But I, I have this conception in my head that, you know, we hack computers, that cybersecurity is a really big deal. That's only going to get worse if we're connecting our brains to the Internet. And so that's kind of my thought process here. There's got to be some kind of stopper, whether that's like actually like a physical thing that you're putting on your face or if it's built in, you know, cybersecurity precautions inside of the neural lace, whatever like form it takes. Um, But just some way of combating both like, you know, cyber attacks to your brain and then cyber attacks from AI or something. All right. Well, I will uh, go ahead and finish off with my last two here. Uh, We will see an app of apps type service for major streaming services that integrates Hulu, Netflix, HBO, Showtime, CBS On Demand, etc. More services will follow. Um, I don't know if this has necessarily come true. I think there's more of a um, presence of things like the uh, TV hubs or something that kind of integrate those types of services where you'll see like promoted content from these apps that you have, right? Like on my fire TV, I can see, uh, right now an advertisement from something from Netflix or IMDB TV because I have those apps installed on here. Um, you know, I can also see advertisements for other things, but then there's also like sponsored content. And then there's, uh, just a, a dashboard of a bunch of different content from all these different um, sources that I can click on and it launches the app and launches the thing that I clicked on directly from this dashboard. So I'm, I'm going to go halfway on this one. I think this is like a half point here um, because we not only see this on things like the Fire TV, we see this on Apple TV, we even see this being more and more prevalent in like on video game consoles or something, you know, like on my PlayStation, I see the same thing. Watch the Mandalorian on Disney plus. Um, so 
I I'm gonna give myself a half point for absolutely. That I mean, you definitely nailed the last section of that of more services to follow. Like the amount of services that kind of spawned. Oh my yeah. goodness, they're everywhere. I mean, Plex is kind of getting at that, especially with like the integration of uh, of their ad. Um, their ad-enabled viewing of basically their library, which is interesting in itself. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a cool thing to see, I guess. I I still am looking for that app of apps. I want to launch on my phone. Um, you know, and and I I mentioned this on the show too. Like, Real Good is another way to like track your shows, and you click on it, and it sends you directly to the app that is a, um, you know, is a. It sends you to an app that has the thing that you're looking for that you have based on your profile. So that's that's another interesting thing, too. Um, okay, uh, my last prediction here was Elon Musk and Tesla will purchase another, what the, WTF oh. company and, <laughs> and present plans for an out-there idea. I, I called it back in 2018. Musk is getting into nanorobotics to mask our senses for virtual experiences. He did not do that. Um, did he purchase another company? I don't know if he did this before 2017, but he did purchase that like roofing company. Oh, for the uh, solar, for solar panels. panels. Yeah, so that definitely counts. I, I, yeah, I don't know if that was before this though. I think it might have been like the impetus for this idea. I'm not quite sure. It was um, the boring company like he, a thing yet at this point. I think gotcha. so. Okay. Um, yeah, I I want to say the biggest WTF from. Elon Musk and Tesla has been. Dude, the I'm truck. so stoked! Uh, <laughs> I oh want my one. god! I really want I'm one. Like money is down, stoked for it. I'm freaking out. It's gonna be great. Wait, d- did you put a down payment on one? Yeah, yeah. It was like a hundred bucks or something to reserve it, so I did that. And because oh of the gosh. timeline for one of them, like because I was gonna do the one was all wheel drive or whatever, it was like my my lease will yeah. be up, so maybe maybe it makes sense. Might be a horrible idea, man. Well, I need to go for a ride with you. That would be so cool. So much fun. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I guess we could get into predictions for uh, for next year, but I don't I don't know off the top of my head. I do want to bring up, though, we did ask in the slack for predictions for over the next year. We do have one from Mateo, our man, the myth legend, most or MVS, most valuable slacker, uh, if you will. Um, Mateo says. Uh, where is his prediction? I did see it just. A I can read ago. it if you want. I've got it right here because I, I. Yeah, if you got it yeah, right there, I go for talking it. back and forth. So we'll have to put the thinking electrodes on and get back to think about that. But definitely a surge in more personalized health and medical gadgets and services for a start. He actually dropped a little bit more knowledge here a second ago. So there's a lot of great health tech at CES this year, among other things. So very eager to see how Fitbit evolves now that Google actually owns them. Uh, having gone really down that road of getting a whoop and yet, oh, he's going to be one of those, a whooper just like me. Uh, but now quite a bit of the stuff is coming out that's going to analyze your breath and tell you what your metabolism is doing. So it's kind of an exciting time for sure. And then there's also all the new tech and hospitals and care facilities as well. So it looks like one local company in Australia is actually with IoT sensors in it. So that's awesome. So I'll put up a link later. So maybe we'll see that in the Slack later this evening. I love that he's on the medical track because that's like really where my head's at for a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, and it's dope that it's all this is coming out in CES too. It's really cool. Yeah, we've been kind of putting a more of a focus on, uh, or at least my mind has been open more to the medical field with with our attendance at a, uh, 
HCS Healthcare Symposium for HFES. Um, I, I think it's a really good prediction. I think a lot of that personalized health and medical gadgets um, and services. I think I think that's a good good place to place your bets. Um, how how are you liking your Whoop? So I'm liking it more and more. I'm still not super. St- I'm n- I haven't really bought into like it provides the best user experience. Um, cause they're still like the, it's not very consistent about telling me the battery is going down and that kind of stuff. Um, but I love the information that it's gathering and that it's pretty on point about how much sleep I need to get to feel at least rest in the next day. And then how much I should work out. Should I work out twice in one day? It's a good idea to go to jujitsu today based on how I beat up my body yesterday, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm really, I'm really liking that aspect of it, like machine learning and what's behind it. Uh, I think there's still a little bit ways to go in terms of the ex- the end experience. And I, I have to say, like, I really discounted the fact that I have to u- look at my app um, all the time. I like the thing about about Fitbit that you kind of just always have it at your fingertip uh, to see the the baseline information, right? Um, so there's, there's some tweaks ah. to be made. Uh, definitely shout out to anybody that gets a whoop and goes and just decides to only get the band by itself. I definitely recommend getting the charging mechanism with it for the extra 50 bucks because then you're just never going to miss a charge and you're always going to have it on you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been a great, great kind of learning experience and something to kind of think about like how you actually time your training. And it's cool to know how much sleep I actually need. Um, and when my body's a little bit beat up, even if I can't tell. We'll pair that with Ring Fit Adventure, and we got there ourselves we go. an episode. That's the way to go. All right. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Uh, for the rest of you, you can join us on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at H Factors Podcast. Uh, be sure to stay tuned for some of those updates that I discussed at the beginning of the episode. We will be dropping some interesting things on our Patreon soon. Uh, you like if you like what you hear, want to support the show. And leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or like i said we are on patreon um the more of you that support us on patreon the more ad free we can be and of course you can always reach us at our home on the web humanfactorscast.com i want to thank mr blake arnstorff for being on the show today where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about surveillance drones guys come and reach me anywhere you can hit me on instagram or twitter at don't panic ux or you can always ask me questions directly on our slack either the dm or in the general channel whatever works for you as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time. It depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.